Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute at King's College, London, Director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and co-author of the book, Putin versus the People. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for finding the time to join me this week. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Steve. Great to be back with you, and thanks for the invitation. All right. Um, now, the first thing I want to talk about, uh, actually, the introduction to this podcast, um, significant developments and upcoming events, um, sounds sort of trite sometimes now, uh, but in fact, there are very significant developments and events upcoming. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is something that started last week, uh, but it's continuing now and seems likely uh, to have major repercussions for months, if not years, to come. I'm talking about the mobilization that Putin ordered with a decree last week amid uh, what have been persistent manpower problems uh, for the Russian military and its war war on Ukraine, uh, and, and also uh, following this more recent setbacks there, most notab mo notably a counteroffensive in which Ukrainian forces have retaken uh, swaths of land that Russia had seized, mostly in the Kharkiv region, north of the Donbass. Now, Putin, um, in his decree and, and in his... Uh, comments and, and other Russian officials are calling this a partial mobilization. But there are serious doubts uh, that it's really just partial. Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said the aim uh, is to call up 300,000 men. Uh, but there are reports uh, that the Kremlin's real target figure may be 1 million or more, up to 1.2 million. Uh, and um, we'll talk about the, the potential effect on the war itself a little later. But so far, the mobilization order has had a very visible effect, its most visible effect in Russia. Um, and it's becoming more and more visible by the day, it seems to me. Uh, there are protests that are being dispersed roughly by riot police in many cases. Um, some uh, ongoing kind of uh, protests uh, in, the, in the North Caucasus, among other places. And there are also large numbers of people, mainly young men, trying to leave the country. Um, lines, very long lines at borders with Georgia and Mongolia, uh, among other countries. Many, many, many people fleeing or attempting to flee to Kazakhstan uh, and other other countries that, that border Russia. Sam, you, you've written and spoken about various aspects of the mobilization, including uh, the issue of whether ethnic minorities and poorer people in Russia are bearing the brunt. And the mobilization has clearly made it much harder for many Russians to essentially ignore the war in Ukraine, which I would say is, a, is something that had amounted or amounts to tacit support. Uh, people kind of going about their business or trying to, and uh, when they're asked about the war saying, I don't want to talk about it, or uh, something like that. Um, so this this has changed that, um, you know, for millions of Russians. Uh, I'm going to frame the question this way, Sam. Obviously, um, 
the mobilization will result in even more death and suffering in Ukraine, and it's terrible news uh, for many Russians as well. It will increase the death toll among Russian soldiers, which Shoigu said last week is less than 6,000, but uh, Western intelligence estimates put at 15,000 or more, possibly much more. So uh, my question uh, is, for Putin, is the mobilization a huge mistake? It's a great question, Steve, and, and it's a difficult one to answer in large measure because, I mean, for Putin, I mean, this whole war has been a huge mistake, right? I mean, it, it, it wasn't ever going to be capable of achieving, you know, at least victory on the terms that, that he set out. Um, it has done, you know, tremendous amounts of damage, obviously, to, 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 to Ukraine and, and cost thousands of, of lives in ways that have been tragic and, and criminal. Um, but, you know, even if you just take a, a sort of a cynical perspective of, you know, what his interests are, it's made him, you know, the leader of, of a poorer and less secure uh, uh, country. And it's it's really attacked a lot of the the structures that had been, you know, uh, important to you know, keeping him legitimate and, and to keeping him um, in power. Um, so to the extent that this mobilization is a continuation of this war and something that's designed to enable him to to continue the war, not necessarily to win it, although we'll, we'll I suppose, come back to that question. But, you know, to, to that extent, it is, um, uh, you know, a continuation of the same mistake. It's a doubling down um, of, um, of all of the risks, right? One of which um, was always going to be the risk of, you know, how does the Russian public uh, deal with this war, right? I mean, he, um, uh, you know, obviously, you know, one way or another had some bad analysis, right, going into this war way back in, in, in February, right? He thought he was going to be able to, to win this rather quickly. But one of the things he also thought, right, was that he was going to be able to shield the Russian public broadly from this war. And so, you know, he, he said at the outset, there's not going to be mobilization. There's not going to be a draft. We're not going to call people up, right? Um, and in fact, he didn't do a lot uh, ahead of the war uh, to actually prepare, you know, people, you know, to say, you know, uh, to say nothing of, of preparing them for, for mobilization. He didn't really even prepare them for for the war. Russian public opinion was broadly caught off guard by this. Even even the Russian state television was broadly caught off guard by this and didn't really know how to how to cover it, how to frame it, and how to spin it in the early days and and weeks of the war. Um, you know, which does indicate that he had things to be worried about, or he felt that he had things to, to be worried about in terms of how the Russian public would respond to that. And we are seeing that play out now uh, uh, on the streets, in border crossings, and, and, and in, in towns and communities and in the private lives of Russians uh, around, you know, the country. You, you, you said something, you know, about, you know, whether or not, you know, trying to sort of keep quiet on the war, right, uh, amounts to tacit support. And there's a moral question in there, right, um, which, you know, everybody will decide, uh, you know, on their own, what's the appropriate way of, of, of facing things. But, um, you know, the, the, the reality is that from a, a political perspective and from a perspective of, of Putin getting what he wanted and, and getting away with the violence that he was doing, not just to Ukraine, but to Russia, right, it, it is true that that, that you know, uh, uh, decision to, to sort of ignore the war, to to keep your head down, you know, did function essentially as as tacit support. Uh, it, one of the things that allowed people to do was to look around them and believe that in fact there was a consensus uh, uh, in support of this war, and that meant that people could.
um, uh, you know, were more likely to, to stay on board with it. Now, I think, you know, people look around and they see a somewhat different picture. Right? Uh, individuals are, are now faced with, in cases, the impossibility of, of ignoring the war. Right. Um, they face the, the choice of making a, 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 what is, you know, again, morally, maybe not a difficult decision, but in terms of your life course, a difficult decision between, uh, you know, do you do you go and, and, and allow yourself to become an instrument of violence and war in another country? Or do you face, you know, uh, you know 10 years in, in jail potentially for for evading the draft or for for desertion? Right. That that for a lot of people will be a difficult choice to make. And. And uh, and that's led to people, you know, seeking ways to um, uh, to avoid that particular um, uh, that particular dilemma, right? Whether that's by protesting and trying to create political change, or or whether that's by uh, heading uh, uh, heading for the border, right? So in, in a lot of ways, I think you know, Putin has uh, made this situation more acute for himself, um, uh, and. Um, uh, and, and yes, double down on, on on that mistake. I mean, he will, of course, have felt that there was you know reason for him to do this. He was under pressure from public opinion, and he was under pressure. He feels under pressure, right? Clearly, to 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 make some progress in this war, or at the very least, to keep the Ukrainians from making progress uh, in uh, in the war. Um, he will be you know aware of the risks of of what he's doing, and he you know inevitably will have made the calculation that that the the, the risks are are worth the potential reward. Um, whether or not that you know turns out in his favor, um, I mean, I'm not going to predict the future, but we're going to have to wait and see. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very hard to predict the future. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, some great points about um, both the things that were happening at the beginning uh, around the time of the invasion, and then also now, um, you know, around the time of the invasion, where he, he, Putin obviously didn't. Um, did not expect to have to to have to draft people um, to have to uh, conduct this mobilization uh, seven months later, um, you know. And the, the consensus is that he he believed uh, his goals or the subjugation of Ukraine would be achieved very quickly. Um, so obviously that would uh, be something that would be uh, much easier for for many Russians to swallow, uh, whether or not they they cared much about it um you know but on the other hand it's it's difficult i mean i think i wrote at the beginning and others you know and as you mentioned um the war itself and and, and ordering the invasion uh, was a big mistake you know and and presumably may may turn out to have been kind of a you know fatal political mistake for for putin in in addition to what it's done you know, to the lives of, of, of many, many people. Um, but then again, seven months later, you know, we're here, he is, you know, he's still uh, ruling Russia and the war is still going on. And, you know, now we're talking about another mistake. So, you know, as you say, again, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to predict what's going, what's going to happen. Um, and it's even hard, I think, you know, I don't know, you've seen kind of the, Know, more and more footage from from regions uh, where people are protesting the war not 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 huge numbers but but quite vocal um, in many cases uh, and it's kind of hard to gauge I think you know what what is going to to happen as a result of that um, now I'd also like to hear your thoughts uh, and you mentioned this um, about how the mobilization may actually affect 
the core of the war, of Russia's uh, war against Ukraine. But I'm going to combine that with kind of the other big development uh, that occurred last week. Um, a day before Putin announced the so-called partial mobilization, Russian imposed administrators in four Ukrainian regions that are partially controlled by Russian forces, abruptly announced last Tuesday that they would hold so-called referendums on joining Russia, and those would start last Friday. Uh, these processes, I, I hesitate to even call them votes, um, have been denounced as a sham by Kiev, uh, Western countries, and the UN for, for many reasons. They don't correspond to international law, uh, among other things. There's a war going on. Um, uh, and there are several other reasons. Um, an expert told RFRL that they would have, quote, no legitimacy whatsoever, unquote. But in any case, uh, this process, these processes in the four regions, ends tomorrow. Uh, and Russia seems certain to use it to claim that the Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions of Ukraine are parts of Russia, as it did with Crimea in 2014. And in fact, um, it appears that on Friday, September 30th, uh, Putin may, make a, may deliver his annual address to Parliament, to the nation, and um, the what Russia would consider the, the um, annexation or the, the, you know, the Russia, these regions becoming part of Russia will be in Russia's eyes. Uh, it looks like that may be finalized on Friday as well. Um, and um, in, in his, uh, in his uh, address where, in which he announced the mobilization, uh, Putin also issued, he supported, offered support for the referendums, which are obviously organized by Moscow. And he issued a very thinly veiled threat to potentially use nuclear weapons if these regions are attacked, which, uh, you know, once they become part of Russia, which they clearly will be, at least in Russia's eyes. Ukraine, of course, is not attacking another country. It's defending itself. Um, but the chances that it will stop fighting and essentially hand those regions over to Russia are zero or very, very close to it. Uh, but let me get to my question, Sam. So, um, with the Russian mobilization and these processes in the four Ukrainian regions, is the war about to enter a new phase? And if so, what might it look like? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that question. I'm very far from being a military um, analyst. Um, but, you know, the look, I think this war is being fought on two fronts. And I think that what we're seeing both with the referenda and the mobilization is intended to have an impact uh, on uh, on both fronts. I think that Putin you know, remains uncertain about exactly what can be achieved uh, on either front. Right? He's learning a lot about his military as this war goes on. Uh, and, you know, uh, whatever confidence he had in it must have been undermined, at least to some extent. And so he must have questions in his own mind about you know, how much these, you know, 300,000 troops are going to be able to achieve once they do get to the border. We're, we're getting some indication that some of them are, are getting to the front very, very, very quickly, um, essentially without any, any training at all. Um, others may, may take some more time, right? Um, it would be, you know, ridiculous to suggest that it's not intended to have an impact uh, on the border 
sorry, on the on the front lines itself, um, and and on the course of the fighting. At the very least, uh, as I said earlier, I think that there's you know, uh, a, a hope in in Moscow and in the military command that this would uh, at least make it a little bit harder for the Ukrainians to keep uh, uh, advancing and would would increase the toll that uh, Ukrainian troops pay for any territory that they are able to take back. Um, but I think that, that the mobilization together with these referenda, right, are uh, intended to alter the, the cost-benefit analysis and the calculations that are made in Kiev uh, and uh, in, in Western capitals, right? Um, they are intended to uh, make it maybe a little bit easier uh, for decision makers um, uh, uh, on on the other side, right, to uh, to come to the conclusion that maybe it's time to to, to stop fighting. I mean, look, nobody thinks that the peace deal is on is on the table, uh, and Putin, I think, uh, doesn't see one as, as achievable. Certainly, not one that would recognize uh, you know Russian political control, formal control over the territory that it has, but anything that would you know ramp down the the, the pace of the fighting. Uh, that would make it possible for him to uh, to stop taking losses, maybe to reduce some of the political pressure at home, maybe to reduce some of the pressure that he's getting from Beijing. Looking back to the summit in in Tashkent just just recently, uh, you know, would um, uh, w- would be beneficial to him, right? Uh, and so I think uh, that there is uh, there is some hope, uh, uh, you know, on his side that this might um, you know help to achieve that. Um, looking from the outside, as you said, it's, it's impossible to imagine Kiev deciding that it's time to stop fighting. Um, and it, it's, you know, sitting here in Washington and talking to people in London and other places, it's, it's frankly equally impossible to imagine Western capitals at the moment putting pressure on Kiev to stop fighting. Um, and so I don't think that Putin is going to achieve um, uh, anything uh, in in that regard, right? Um, at which point that will you know put the onus back on his decision making in terms of what actually happens on the on the physical on the battlefield front, right? Uh, the military front, uh, rather than kind of the diplomatic and, and psychological front uh, in this war. He will then have to decide whether or not it's actually you know serves his purposes to escalate. Um, his military will have to decide whether it actually has the capability. Of, of escalating and withstanding whatever the consequences of that escalation uh, might uh, uh, might be. Um, you know, I think, again, uh, it would be inappropriate uh, and unwise to discount the possibility of that uh, escalation. Um, but when I talk to people here in, in, in Washington and, and, and sort of hear the tenor of the conversations in, in London and other places, I... You know, I don't get the impression that uh, Western leaders um, are minded to uh, to take these threats very seriously. Right? Um, I mean, there there is a difficult balance that they've tried to maintain from the beginning of this war, which is, you know, on the one side, uh, a, a very clear desire to make sure that Russia does not win, um, uh, to make sure that 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 uh, no signal is sent that you can, uh, uh, you know, handle international relations this way. Uh, but at the same time, to prevent this from from escalating and causing more uh, more devastation, right? And there's an obvious tension right, between those 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 two things, right? That the less you know, the more you hedge, the less you try to to escalate, um, uh, the, the the more likely it becomes that that you know Russia can turn this into a war of attrition in which you know it, its gains may not be formalized, but they will become de facto uh, gains for um, uh, for Russia. 
um, you know, clearly Moscow at the moment is trying to turn things in that direction at, at minimal cost uh, to itself. Uh, and uh, you know, by, by by threatening through 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 ultimatums and and, and this kind of of rhetoric. Uh, and again, I'm not hearing a lot of of willingness here, right, to be drawn into that kind of game. But of course, there is you know there there is a risk uh, on the other side of that. Thanks. Uh, that's uh, very very helpful. It kind of reminds me. Um, I feel the same. You said sort of a tension between between two kind of things. Um, it sort of reminds me of, of the run up, uh, the build up to the invasion. Um, you know where Russia was making these big demands on the U.S. and NATO and, and Ukraine, um, and um, it was hard to see. You know, the diplomacy was tried. But it was it was really hard to see, despite the fact that it seemed unbelievable to many, uh, including me, um, that Russia would really go ahead, that Putin would really go ahead with his invasion. It's it seemed difficult to understand how he could not, after after making the, the demands um, that Russia had made, um, you know, permanent Na uh, Ukraine not joining NATO, other countries also. Uh, staying out of NATO permanently, you know, kind of a rollback of some of the results of the of the Soviet collapse and and the end of the Cold War. So I, I find myself at least thinking sort of a similar situation now, where um, you know Putin is kind of ratcheting up the the threats and 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 the stakes, I guess, with this mobilization. It's hard to understand, you know, um, how we could back down. But then you have also the, you know, the fact that it's unclear what the mobilization will actually achieve in terms of, of, of gains or, or, or preventing further Ukrainian uh, gains or, or retaking of, of territory. Uh, I just, I guess I just want to ask one additional question, if you don't mind. Do you think that the, um, uh, the sort of the effect that this mobilization and the other um, developments have on the war will will kind of affect how it plays out in Russia in terms of, you know, does this go toward um, more serious and more widespread opposition to the war and opposition to, to the government and Putin, um, you know, or does it sort of fizzle out if, if, um, if Russia seems to kind of hold its own or do what, do what Putin would, would probably want it to do? Um, I mean, clearly, look, I, I think if, if this does lead to, uh, you know, a sea change on the battlefield, and again, I don't know anybody who expects that to happen, but if it does, then, then you know, then Putin will have dodged a, a bullet. I think anything short of that, right, the, the, the Putin will have to be very, very careful, right? Um, you know, Russians, there's all this debate you know, now about, you know, why, you know why we don't see larger protests in 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 Russia and people comparing developments you know there to developments in, in Ukraine in the past or developments in Belarus and other other places and and you know that's a very long and and complicated conversation but you know the the reality is that 
um, you know, Russians do protest, and 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 Russians have even with relatively small scale protests, you know, been able to force the government to change course on a regular basis. Right? You can go back to things like you know, uh, benefits reforms and and social welfare reforms in two thousand five. You can you can look at at housing reforms and education reforms, and 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 uh, you can even look you know back to the beginning of the pandemic when the you know the, the Kremlin tried to go for for you know reasonably stringent uh, uh, you know pandemic. Uh, restrictions, right, um, and public resistance really forced them to to turn back on that, right. Uh, and we can again have a very long and 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 and, and interesting and complicated conversation about you know the kinds of things that uh, that, that Russians do and don't mobilize uh, uh, against, and 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 why politics is often not not one of them. Uh, but um, you know th- there is a long-standing pattern of of Russians, uh, you know, mobilizing in defense of their uh, their personal livelihoods, not just material livelihoods, but their 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 autonomy, right? And uh, and and this is you know, the kind of thing that that really can can impinge on that, right? So if people, you know, do begin to feel that they can't uh, maintain their autonomy in this context, uh, and if people do begin to feel that in fact uh, uh, this is not going to be limited, right? If if Putin does make it clear tacitly or otherwise that. Uh, uh, that this mobilization is going to go beyond 300,000 people, that, that really nobody is, is going to be safe from it one way or another, then uh, you know, I, I think that, that there is at least the potential uh, for them to face some, some very real uh, uh, resistance, which can have um, you know, unpredictable consequences. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great answer. Now, I'm going to, we're, we're uh, starting to run short on time. Uh, I'm going to uh, turn to some some questions from listeners. Uh, we have a few um, already, so I'll start um, uh, reading those. And uh, one question is, um, uh now this we you touched on this uh, somewhat, Sam. Um, if the referendums go in favor of Russia and those areas become part of Russia, and of course, you know that would be in Russia's eyes. I'm I'm interjecting here, uh, and NATO continues its military support for Ukraine. You know what will be the scenario? And you mentioned that uh, you, you did talk about that, uh, but maybe you could expand a little, if, if possible, uh, Sam. Uh, I mean, what the scenario is 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 really hard to know. Um, I don't imagine. Again, it's very difficult for me to imagine. You know, Ukrainian military commanders deciding, okay, right now, you know, Russia's drawn a line and we can't cross it. Right? Um, that would be. Um, uh, untenable, right? and it would undermine, I think, the Ukrainian war effort uh, broadly. Uh, and and again, I, I really don't think so. You know, we, we have, you know, seen, for example, the Biden administration here in the U.S. put you know put limitations uh, on um, the sorts of arms and on the, the potential use of arms that it's, it's provided to Ukraine to make sure that this war does not you know get fought on on Russian territory proper, right? Um, you know, clearly has not prevented Ukraine from striking. You know, even in 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 Crimea, which you know the U.S. and, and, and really nobody else, right? Um, uh, sorry, the U.S. and everybody else recognizes as as, as Ukrainian territory rather than uh, rather than than Russian, right? Um, and I think the the same kind of principle would extend to to any of these um, uh, oblasts that, uh, that 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 Russia you know may decide to claim. 
uh, as its own. Right? Um, so I, I, my, you know, initial inclination is to think that the war will continue. It will, it will continue to cross those lines, um, and uh, and we will have to wait and see, right? What what kind of escalation um, uh, Moscow decides to uh, uh, decides to pursue? Um, you know, I, I think some degree of escalation is probably almost, uh, unfortunately, almost inevitable. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Sam. Thanks very much. Um, um, there's a request to speak from Pyotr Kurzin. Um, so we'll give you speaking uh, privilege and you can ask the question, Pyotr. Oh, thank you very much. I didn't expect to be uh, to join, but um, I, I appreciate the space, uh, Sam. I've followed your work for a bit. Um, I myself actually come from Russia partially. Um, and I'm just curious... I'm, I'm, I must admit, I'm a little bit surprised um, by the by your framing of some of your positions. Um, I think that this is pretty serious that we're seeing. Um, and from what I understand, historically, Russians don't tend to mobilize um, and sort of, you know, protest unless it's a really, really serious thing. Um, I'm very concerned by the direction that the war is going. I do think there's been a sea change uh, with the seismic um, counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have conducted and continue to do. Um, so I'm just curious how you think that this is going to play into the longer term stabilization within Russia. We don't have a clear replacement for Putin. Uh, I draw a lot of parallels to 1917 in sort of that we've got, you know, a front where Russia's losing a lot. The economy is basically flatlining um but there's no clear like sort of lenin character to sort of come through and really replace the the current incumbent regime so just curious how you think that this is going to play into russia's broader stabilization and therefore its interests in other sort of near abroad theaters like say the Caucasus or uh the central asian states thank you Wow, uh, great, great, great set of questions, Steve. I don't know if we have another hour to uh, to deal with all of this, um, but I think um, you know, relatively briefly. Look, um, uh, I'm not you know um, unconcerned about uh, about any of this. Um, uh, I think that the potential for for escalation uh, uh, is real, right? Uh, the potential for mobilization at home as in civic mobilization, not military mobilization, um, is, uh, is also real. And, um, you know, it, it's true that, you know, what we tend not to see in Russia when it comes to protest movements are large-scale political movements. We have seen some, right? Um, they, they tend to, to run into very real limitations. And, and you know, th there's a lot of reasons behind that. But, but one of which is, is that, um, you know, Russians by and large... Um, uh, the, the problem in, in, in Russian politics for the Russian opposition is not that people think that the country is well governed, right? That the problem has historically been and, and remains that most people don't believe that if you were to have a change of government, that things would, would improve in their, in their lives. Again, we could have a long conversation about what, you know, why you, you don't have that sensibility in, in, in places like, like Ukraine, for example. Uh, but that is, you know, the, generally the issue uh, in uh, uh, in Russia, right? But when, you know, uh, pushed with their backs to the wall, and even on things we might think of as, as, as relatively minor, right, you do get, uh, you know, protest movements, again, around things I mentioned before, social benefits, healthcare, housing, uh, you know, automotive rights, um, you know, trucker protests, strikes, that kind of thing, right, that, that have consistently forced the Kremlin uh, to 
to back down, right? Um, and uh, and again, most recently, you know, around uh, COVID nineteen restrictions, right? Um, this, you know, is the kind of thing that could force the Kremlin to do that. In which case, the Kremlin is going to have to decide, uh, you know, whether or not this is important enough for it to stick to its guns. In which case, it's going to have to use force much more uh, at home, right, um, than it has generally done. Uh, even even up to date, right? And 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 the, the regime obviously has become increasingly repressive and increasingly willing to use force against protesters and and civilian populations at home uh, in uh, in recent months and uh, and years. Right. Um, that said, right. Um, I think it's much more likely that public unrest forces the regime to backtrack on the draft uh, and and then to to seek kind of a ceasefire. Uh, in in Ukraine, rather than leading to some kind of revolutionary uh, uh, instability, um, you know the Kremlin, you know, aside from controlling a police state, which it can decide how to use, you know, does control, uh, you know, the commanding heights of pretty much everything, right? And, and and not even just the commanding heights, right? It controls the television and much of much of the traffic on the internet. It controls all the political parties in the Duma. It controls. Uh, the education system, right? It 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 uh, has the ability, as a result, to pivot rhetorically uh, and in terms of propaganda at home, if it wants to, right? And it, you know, anything short, I think, of losing control of the territory it had on the twenty third of February, twenty twenty two, it will be able to claim as a victory, right? Um, and there will be some who will kind of snipe at the margins, but but they'll be able to uh, to to withstand that. Um, so I, I don't think that a failure of of you know, military mobilization has to necessarily lead to uh, to, to to sort of a revolutionary scenario in uh, in uh, in Russia, in which case you know all of the questions that, that you raise about you know who would succeed him and that kind of thing um, you know would uh, would would become relevant. I, I don't think it's potentially that uh, that destabilizing. But again, um, you know uh, it's the only thing harder to predict in a war is a is a revolution, uh, and so I'm. Um, uh, I, I don't want to go too far on a limb in, in, in terms of projecting this into the into the future. Okay, uh, Sam, thanks very much, and I'm going to be very generous with your insight and let Piotr ask a follow-up question. Uh, thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, no, I, I understand, Sam. It's not an easy um, uh, question. Um, just for me, I mean, the thing about Russia is I think the West does have a degree of hubris. Uh, they assumed that sort of when Russia left the Soviet Union and, and was sort of going to join the international system like China, that it would sort of become a full-fledged democracy in the model of the West. And I don't think that that's ever something that was going to happen. Russia might have its own interpretation of democracy. Um, but now we've got this situation where we don't have a clear alternative. Um, and I'm really not sure in terms of partial or, let's be honest, full-scale mass mobilization is going to really lead to some kind of systemic um, change in attitudes. So Russia is now going to become a bit of a vassal state, a bit of a husk. Uh, and I'm just wondering what you think that means for sort of other countries that are dependent upon Russia uh, for support um, and broadly just um, China specifically, but also India uh, and some of the Central Asian states. If we could just drill down a little bit more into what you think it means for Russian uh, role as a, as a stabilization force in other parts of the globe. Um, whether we like it or not, they are a P5 member and they do have a lot of say in other files uh, in other regions. Um, and if there's a 
well, chaos at home, it's going to make their ability to conduct foreign policy uh, that much harder. So I'm just curious if you could expand a little bit on that. Uh, if not, I appreciate that. It's not a it's not an easy question. Yeah, look, it is it is a very very big question. And again, I'm I'm going to avoid for the for the moment, uh, or at least for this conversation, right? The 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 question about you know. Uh, sort of Russian approaches to, to to democracy. I other than to say that like I'm I'm not a I'm not a cultural essentialist, right? So while I take your point on 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 hubris, and I think you're right that you know th there was kind of a facile assumption that Russia was going to become like us, whatever like us might might mean, right? Um, I, I I wouldn't run too far in the other direction and say that Russians are so fundamentally different, right? That they don't want the same things that, that kind of most people around the world do, which is to live in in, in prosperity and security and and uh, and generally speaking, that that's you know better done when you don't have a repressive government. Um, I think uh, you know the 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 broader point, the other point you make, sort of on on the geopolitical one, is is a very important one, right? It was just January of this year, although it feels like ages ago, right, uh, that it took Russian military involvement to prop up um, a uh, uh, you know the the the, the Tokayev government in uh, in Kazakhstan, right? It wasn't all that long ago that the same kind of thing was needed. Um, in 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 Belarus and and to a large extent, you know, the Armenian government owes its um, uh, its existence at the moment to 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 to, to Russian support, um, and so um, you know, I, I think it is very reasonable, right, uh, to raise the question of of what's happening uh, in in those areas. It's something I think we as analysts and, and governments are not paying enough attention to, um, not least because you know while Russia has been able to cushion itself from the impact of sanctions and 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 sort of global isolation, uh, um, you know, through its its reserves, right? Um, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Belarus, others have have actually been hit much much harder, right? Um, and those social, same socioeconomic factors that led to, to political uh, dissatisfaction there and undermined governments there, right, will eventually come back to the fore, right, at a time when you know Rosguardia is is not going to be there uh, to uh, to prop these regimes. Uh, up, right, and I think that's part of the reason um, why you know just recently again we've we've begun to see uh, you know the Kazakhs, for example, um, you know begin to pivot a little bit, right, and return to earlier strategies of yes, of course you're going to want to have a good you know strong relationship with with, with Moscow, it's the neighborhood that you're in, right, but you need to be able to to, to balance that, right, um, you need to be able to you know obviously have a, a good and productive relationship with with China if you're in that neighborhood, right, but you also want to balance that with good and productive relationships with with Washington and with with Brussels, uh, and uh, and we're beginning to see. I think the first, you know, signs of that uh, of that happening again, right? Um, again, I don't think that, in fact, um, you know, we need to see that as as something that's revolutionary. I think that's a return to kind of the way that the game was played uh, up until very, very recently, when some of these regimes became extraordinarily beholden uh, uh, to Moscow. I think this actually can, you know, uh, return to some stability um, uh, in the uh, uh, in the region. Um, it can at least be a source of stability if, if, if these regimes are, are more autonomous uh, and more able to, to balance in a, in a global system. Um, but, you know, coming way, way back to the beginning of this whole conversation, you know, when, when Steve framed this as, has this been a mistake? One of the things that this has done, right, has been to undermine uh, Russian power in the, in the region and, and in the world. Any soft power that it had, and it had built some, right, has been, has been greatly undermined. Uh, uh, by this war and its ability to 
uh, to sort of, you know, to walk and chew gum, right? To, 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 to help settle conflicts in, in various parts of the world has, has also been uh, uh, undermined, right? Um, that's, uh, it, that's, that's a hit that they're going to, to take. And it's unfortunately, you know, for, uh, for the Russians, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, going to take uh, quite some time, I think, for them to, uh, you know, return to being seen as, uh, as a reliable partner. All right. Uh, that is a fascinating answer that I think, as you say, kind of takes us uh, full circle and we really are running out of time. Um, you know, that sort of gives a picture of, of how this fits in even, even in a, in a wider way um, uh, and in, in, the, in the region. Um, and we, we really are running short of time, so I am going to um, wrap it up here. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks to everybody who tuned in. All right. Uh, yes, thanks very much for tuning in and for your questions. Once again, I've been speaking to Sam Green, a professor at the Russia Institute at King's College London, director of Democratic Resilience at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and co-author of the book Putin Versus the People, a title that I think is quite apt right now. Um, my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the central newsroom at RFERL. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please have a look at my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out next on Friday, October 7th. Thanks for listening.